Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. From South China Morning Post, this is Inside China Tech. Insights into what matters. Come work for us because we are 996. Are you okay? I started Alibaba 1999 in my apartment. What's your problem? Speed and data. And that's where China comes in. President Trump signed a law restricting American businesses from working with Huawei over national security and espionage concerns. One of Huawei's chairmen saying that the Congress acted as the judge, jury and executor. So the Chinese telecoms giant is safe enough to be given a role in the new 5G network, but not safe enough to be allowed near sensitive locations such as nuclear sites and military bases. So will there be a diplomatic clash with the United States? The chief financial officer of Chinese technology giant Huawei was arrested on Saturday at the request of the United States, a move likely to escalate tensions between the two countries. This arrest is sending shockwaves throughout global markets. It took place on the same night as the high-stakes dinner... Hi, welcome to another episode of Inside an Attack. I'm your producer, Yang Yang, bringing you another episode from under my blanket in my living room in Hong Kong. Today, we're going to talk about Huawei, the largest telecommunications equipment manufacturer and the second largest smartphone manufacturer in the world. Now, you might or might not be familiar with it, but you definitely have picked up its name from the news here and there. From its 5G technologies, the scrutiny and debate on its security in the US and Europe, to its CFO Meng Wanzhou's extradition case in Canada. And of course, it has also been the epicenter of the US-China tech war. Last year in May, the US put Huawei on a trade blacklist, effectively banning it from doing business with US firms. Last month, Huawei CEO and founder Ren Zhengfei had an interview with the South China Morning Post. So on this episode, we're going to talk through some of the issues at stake with the S&P's tech editors who have been working on this topic. I have Gareth Nicholson, Melissa Zhu, and BM Parrots with me. Thank you guys for zooming in from your living room or whichever corner in your apartments. Welcome to the show. Thanks for the introduction, Yang. Yeah, this is Gareth Nicholson. I'm a senior technology editor with the SEMP. Um, and as you mentioned, I have two members of my team here today, Melissa Ju, Hey, Yang. Who is an editor, and Bien Perez. Hello. Another editor on the team who also happens to have um, covered the telecom sector for many years. So hopefully uh, we can have a good discussion about Huawei today. And um, also, if, if readers are interested, um, or listeners are interested, you can go to our website, scmp.com, and you move to the tech page, you'll find uh, the big Huawei reads there. Right. Thank you, guys. So as we mentioned, the mistrust between the US government and Huawei has been growing for quite some time, actually for years. How did we wind up here? Why is Huawei at loggerheads with the U.S.? That's a very good question, Yang, a very fundamental question. 
Um, and I think it's best answered uh, in three parts. Um, there is a historical part to the question. There's a political part, technical and sort of industry answer to the question. So perhaps I can start with the history first. Um, now, the Huawei founder, Ren Zhengfei, um, he, he, he always knew that if um, Huawei is going to be a very successful multinational corporation, um, that at some point Huawei, uh, the uh, telecoms, would need to crack the U.S. market. He also spent a lot of time visiting the U.S. in his younger days um, and was a particular admirer of IBM and, and IBM's kind of business culture and business practices. So, you know, that was number one. You know, Huawei did want to crack the U.S. market. And I think if we go back, um, I mean, the history is very complicated, but I think if we start in the early 2000s, um, Huawei started to try and crack this market. But unfortunately, um, early on, it became a bit of a cropper when it comes to intellectual property. Um, and I think one of the landmark cases, it got into a dispute with Cisco um, over intellectual property regarding one of Cisco's routers. Um, and it ended up in an intellectual property lawsuit, which was later settled out of court. Um, and the details are unknown. But effectively, um, this kind of raised a bit of a problem for Huawei because it kind of, you know, it, it kind of put them in the spotlight of the US um, and it raised questions around intellectual property. Um, now, actually, intellectual property disputes are nothing new and it's not unique to Huawei. If you think about the early days of the smartphone, um, you know, Apple and, not, and Samsung had many, many intellectual property lawsuits. So this is not unusual, but it did become a bit of a problem for Huawei in the early days. And then throughout the 2000s, um, you know, there was, there was a kind of rising uh, crescendo of political opposition to Huawei within the US. There was a variety of government reports and agency reports, this time kind of fingering Huawei as being close to the Chinese government and kind of raising question marks around its security um, and around the fact that it was a Chinese company. Um, so that, that, that's where the politics creeps in. Um, and it really goes down to a fundamental political issue. And it's, this is one of the kind of, if you like, it's just one of the factors that Huawei really can't do much about. Um, it is a Chinese company. And at the end of the day, the political systems between the U.S. and China are very different. Mm. Um, so it has been very easy for U.S. politicians to kind of tar Huawei with an association with China's government. Now, Huawei, for its part, has always denied um, it's a sec national security risk, um, and it's always tried to uh, be transparent about its products. Um, and it's, we're going to talk a little bit about cybersecurity later and, and, and the great lengths to which Huawei has gone to um, be transparent about its network security um, and to try and get governments on board with its equipment. But basically, it has come under political pressure, mainly because it's a Chinese company. And this is where it really ties into um, the rise of China as well. If you go back 20 years, China really didn't have major operations which were challenging on the world stage. Right. Um, but today, you know, we have Huawei in telecoms, we have Alibaba in e-commerce and others, um, and we have companies like DJI. And these are all companies which are now challenging on the world stage. So by definition, um, they become um, more of a threat and more of a, a competitive threat to US and Western companies. Right. So perhaps then, you know, I'll turn to the sort of technology um, and some of the industry issues. Um, again, so we've talked about, you know, some of the intellectual property lawsuits, many of which were settled out of court. Um, but there are issues around um, sort of 
this US suspicion and, and, and kind of the fact that Huawei has now become a 5G champion in networks, um, it has really kind of risen to prominence in the last five to 10 years. Um, and the US um, kind of lost its way with um, network and telecoms equipment companies. It doesn't actually have a national champion. The closest competitors to Huawei today uh, are ZTE in China itself and Nokia and Ericsson, but they're actually European companies. Now, whatever happened in the 2000s was still determined to crack the US market. Um, now, around about 2018, Richard Yu uh, was in the US for the giant Las Vegas um, CES tech fair. And Huawei was about to be endorsed by AT&T so that its phones would be sold in the US, um, you know, with, it, with AT&T being the carrier. But unfortunately, again, at the last minute, US politicians blocked this. Um, and so Huawei um, was effectively hurt again. Hot on the heels of that, um, as you mentioned in the intro, um, Ren Zhengfei's daughter, Meng Wanzhou, the CFO was, of Huawei, was arrested um, at, the, at the back end of 2018 in Canada at the behest of the US, um, and she's been charged with one charge of bank fraud. That case is still pending. Um, and then in 2019, again, as you mentioned, Huawei was added to the US entity list, which is effectively a trade blacklist and blocks Huawei from buying US origin technology. So the pressure has really been ratcheted up on Huawei. Um, Huawei now finds itself in the middle of this tech war between the US and China, which is really about who controls the economy of tomorrow. And you have two very different political systems going up against each other. But this is why Huawei has now found itself right in the middle of this issue. Um, so it's under pressure. Um, it did record record revenue in 2019, but the outlook is now clouded by these various issues. Its phones can no longer use Google mobile services, which are used in many, many Western markets, and it's kind of taken for granted. Hmm. In China, it's not an issue, but outside of China, it's a very big issue. And meanwhile, it's 5G base stations, which are now the market leader. It's having to swap out all kinds of US components and find alternative suppliers. Um, and then on top of all of this, if things couldn't get any, any harder for Huawei, um, it now faces the impact of coronavirus, which is affecting supply chains and companies around the world. So I think I've talked for long enough, but in a nutshell, that's why Huawei is uh, such an important part of the news in the technology sector right now. Right. As you mentioned, Huawei's rivals are mostly Chinese and European companies. So it's even more interesting that the US is having a beef with Huawei. Bian, I know you have been working on the topic of the US and Huawei relationship. Can you walk us through what steps the US has taken to curtail Huawei around the world? Uh, the US reflecting the uh, attitude and approach of its uh, chief executive, uh, the current president there, has been very aggressive. And this aggression uh, was put to light in May last year when it added Huawei along with to the U.S. trade blacklist where more than 140 other Chinese entities uh, have been included over the years. But for Huawei, uh, this was a first, uh, considering that uh, it has been open and transparent for years with regulators and telecoms industry carriers on what it is doing, what its product development processes are, and the technology it would put forth in the market. And then the following month, I think, or in the same later that same month, that was uh, the U.S. government 
banned federal purchases of Huawei telecommunications gear. And last month, uh, President Trump signed into law banning Huawei telecommunications purchases made by rural telecommunications carriers using federal funds. So those three measures have affected Huawei's efforts to become a major player in the world's largest economy. Elsewhere, its efforts to put more of its 5G networks in place uh, were being discredited by the U.S. government. There has been a campaign since early last year to discredit the integrity of Huawei gear. Yes, um, I think Dian has summarized the situation very well here, but there's a couple of things we need to um, unpick. So um, there is this kind of political argument between the U.S. and China. And so what effectively the U.S. is, is saying is that Huawei is a national security threat. And uh, Mike Pompeo has been going around the world, going around the U.S. as allies and explaining in these closed door briefings why the U.S. perceives Huawei to be a threat. But actually, a lot of this none of this evidence has actually been put in the public domain. Um, so it's an accusation. Meanwhile, Huawei has established various cybersecurity centers around the world. There's one in the U.K., there's one in Brussels um, to basically share its product development and its network security protocols with governments. Um, so it's been making this big effort over time. But again, I think the central accusation from the U.S. is because um, in China there is a national security law which requires all Chinese companies to cooperate with China's um, intelligence and defense agencies, if so required. Um, so this is a general law. It's nothing that Huawei can do anything about. It does exist. Um, however, um, Huawei, for its part, even Ren Zhengfei has said, you know, he would rather close down the company than compromise any of his clients' data or security. And he's gone on the record saying, you know, he wishes no harm to anybody. But at the end of the day, this is the issue. That law does exist on the statute books. It, it is a law which, which, which binds all Chinese companies. And, and, and that really is a central um, concern. Now, um, when it comes to network security itself, Part of the problem is none of us work for um, intelligence agencies. We're kind of technology editors and reporters. Now, a telecoms network is a bit like um, any kind of device or instrument. I mean, it's meant to connect people so they can talk to each other and share information. Now, that, that's a very thing that people like to do every day. But if you kind of using the analogy of, of like a knife, um, if you're in a kitchen and your friend has a knife, then you're assuming he's going to help you cook dinner and cut some vegetables. However, if you're in the kitchen with your enemy and he's holding a knife, yeah, you might think he's going to come after you and try and stab you or, or hurt you. And this is the problem. Net, network today, modern telecommunications networks can be used for a variety of things. Um, and you can imagine that, that um, you know, a lot of sensitive information is sometimes put across telecommunications networks. And that's the issue. That's where governments get sensitive. But there is no universal network security standard, and that's part of the problem. And that's something Huawei has been arguing for, because then that would take the decision out of the political arena and put it into a technical standards debate, which you know, Nokia, Ericsson, Huawei, any kind of network security vendor, any kind of network telecommunications provider will have to adhere to. So that's that 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 is one of the one of that's one of the main issues to um, to understand when it comes to security. 
Right. I guess I guess there are three quick takeaways of what you just said uh, from my understanding. So the first one, um, so first of all, the major concern on Huawei's cybersecurity, interestingly, isn't actually about Huawei per se, but is more rooted in this China security law. And secondly, we haven't found a smoking gun on Huawei's side so far, given all the scrutiny. And lastly, the, the network security standards across the globe are not standardized themselves, which makes it extremely hard for Huawei to prove its innocence because there's no universal standard to refer to. Yes, that that's correct. And and then um, we probably need to talk a little bit about um, you know the current state of play. So effectively, Huawei is now blocked from the U.S. Um, but that may be not as bad as people think. At the end of the day, the U.S. has never been and is not a huge market for the U- for for Huawei, the U.S. market. Uh, Huawei's biggest market is China itself, and then Europe. Um, so that's why the decisions in Europe have been so important for Huawei. And I guess recently it secured a sort of victory because the UK has decided a half-in, half-out approach. Um, so Huawei will be excluded from the more sensitive areas of the network, of 5G networks, but um, they will be in the mass volume part, which is actually um, quite good for Huawei. Um, and we're all now looking to Germany, uh, where there is also a split. Um, I think Angela Merkel doesn't want to rule out any particular telecoms provider. Um, but the opposition is actually following the U.S. line and has been arguing quite strongly that Huawei is indeed a national security threat. I think Bien can talk a little bit here about um, what these kind of network, what half in, half out actually means. Sure, Gareth. In January, the U.K. government approved limited use of Huawei uh, telecoms network gear. But without naming Huawei or its cross-rival, uh, cross-town rival ZTE, the UK announcement said high-risk vendors would be excluded from the sensitive core parts of the country's 5G infrastructure, where Huawei will be allowed are the non-core areas, which covers uh, what you call radio access network gear, RAN gear, which comprise the mobile base stations that connect all these devices to the broader telecoms network. So these base stations are the one that we see on top of buildings, on uh, electric poles. These enable devices to get connected, your smartphones and mine, to get connected to the larger telecoms network. So we can play games, call somebody long distance, WhatsApp messaging. That's what those base stations are for, which means it's the largest segment of any mobile network rollout because multiple base stations have to be installed for full coverage in every location. Later in January this year, the EU released a so-called toolbox of measures uh, with commonly agreed guidelines to help all the member countries establish their own 5G equipment purchase policies. It did not suggest a ban for uh, Chinese 5G gear though. That's where we are right now. All these EU member countries have until April 30 to implement their policies based on these EU-approved toolbox of measures. It may have asked the question before, how do you solve a problem like security and for Huawei transparency? And so they established all these so-called Huawei cybersecurity transparency centers 
where telecoms industry players, regulators, and most especially the media can visit and see examples of how the company is trying to promote security and establish uh, security guidelines following the governments where its network gear are used. Uh, all these testing measures are done outside of the public view by experts. And even the UK's National Cyber Security Center, which is the authority for information assurance, they get to regularly visit Huawei offices in Shenzhen and Shanghai to discuss technical issues. So it's, it's a very costly exercise for both Huawei and the government, but it's really good business to show people that they're doing the proper processes and that they have the world-class cybersecurity hygiene measures in place. Right. So in terms of transparency, I understand Huawei has also released its algorithm to the public to welcome scrutiny and to enhance transparency, which is a rare practice for carriers or network providers. Yeah, that's true. Uh, these, these carriers are all very competitive, especially in Europe, and they thoroughly test and verify equipment for at least a year or two before committing to a supplier. No client of Huawei's has so far dismissed their gear simply because uh, of what they hear from the U.S. No, they got to do the testing themselves, learn more about the code. The U.K. Cybersecurity Authority inspects Huawei gear code every single time. And its latest reports show that there may be some technical issues, but it's all related to really technical development of those code and not the result of Chinese state interference. Now, I'm not talking about bringing up Huawei's credentials here as a uh, beacon of security, but this comes from the UK government. And uh, as far as being very thorough in their investigation, I think uh, it has become a model for other European countries to emulate in future. Right. So that's the cybersecurity aspect. Now, Melissa, I know you have been working on um, the founder and CEO of Huawei, Ren Zhenfei's profile for some time. Mm -hmm. And yeah. it's really interesting because rarely do we see a leader of a company so heavily and personally involved in a political, technological and business debate at the scale. So can you tell us why is Huawei's founder, Ren Zhenfei, such a key figure in all of this? Okay, um, so first of all, I think Ren himself is very central um, because his background has been repeatedly mentioned actually as one of the things that um, Western powers have found suspicious about the company. Um, so he's not only a member of the Chinese Communist Party, um, but he also used to serve in the Chinese army between 1974 and 1982 as an engineer. Um, so I think if he came from a purely corporate background, um, then perhaps the rise of Huawei as a Chinese national champion might still draw some scrutiny, but maybe not as much. Um, and then also adding to the fact um, that Ren Zhoufei has always been very low profile. Um, so before uh, this entire US-China tech war blew up um, and the arrest of his daughter, uh, Meng Wanzhou, um, he would tend to avoid the press uh, and he barely gave any interviews. Um, so this only added to the impression that Huawei is this dodgy entity that came out of nowhere 
suddenly became the world's largest telecoms equipment supplier and Ren Zhengfei is at the center of all of this as this kind of mysterious figure. Um, and then plus the fact that it was his daughter that got arrested. Um, I think that this stoked interest further because it became then a story about what you might even call a dynasty being caught in the middle of the US-China tech war. Um, and obviously people became very curious about Ren Zhengfei and his family uh, because this is more interesting than say the US blacklisting some faceless Chinese company. Right. Um, within Huawei, technically, Ren Zhengfei actually only owns about 1% of the company because of the shareholder structure uh, where employees own the company. But um, as the founder and CEO, um, he's ob obviously been very influential in terms of setting the company's direction and its corporate philosophy. So he's the one that came up with Huawei's famous um, so-called wolf culture. He's the one that decided that Huawei would have a decentralized leadership structure with three rotating chairmen uh, and that it would be fully owned by employees. Um, so people that we spoke to for the profile on Ren Zhengfei even went to the extent of calling him the spiritual leader of Huawei. So he's almost like a kind of mythological uh, figure, um, even though most employees um, in the company have never even met him, or maybe precisely because of that. Um, and um, a funny thing is, Ren himself uh, doesn't see himself as a, uh, as a key figure in the company. So in his interview with us a few weeks ago, he actually said that he thinks that whether or not he's in Huawei doesn't really make a difference. Um, and what he said specifically was that, um, I quote, he's a puppet leader. Uh, and he also used what I think was a very interesting analogy, which is that his role is symbolic. So it's like a clay idol in a temple. And without it, the temple would look empty, but actually the clay idol doesn't really do anything. So I thought it was interesting because there seems to be a really great disconnect um, in terms of how important people think Ren Zhengfei actually is to Huawei, which I guess you could say is a symbolic kind of importance uh, versus Ren Zhengfei's actual view of his importance to the company, at least according to him. Interesting. And do you think that metaphor is true, that he is just a symbolic token for this company and less of a, I guess, practical chief executive? I think that actually it's what he wishes to become true um, in the sense that like he has, it's true that he's, um, he's made a lot of moves to ensure leadership continuity. Um, like I said, you know, he implemented a rotating chairman structure to make sure that leadership was distributed, um, that decision-making didn't rest solely upon him. Uh, but at the same time, um, I also think that that analogy is very fitting because, I mean, a temple would have no purpose without an idol in it, right? I mean, why would you go to a temple if you have nothing to worship? So in that sense, while he is still around, um, like he is basically the person that everybody within the company looks up to and which, you know, like sets the direction. So it doesn't matter whether or not he, in his role, he has the actual decision-making power, but everybody makes decisions according to his philosophy. So in that sense, um, it is a very fitting analogy. Interesting. So as we're speaking, Huawei is still waiting for the decision from Europe. We know the UK has the half in half outtake. But the rest of Europe is pretty much still up in the air. 
And as Gareth mentioned, the pandemic will probably add more challenges on Huawei. So, looking forward, what is the outlook for Huawei in 2020? Okay, so perhaps I can start. So actually, yeah, we're we're all now waiting for the official German、um, decision, which will follow the UK decision earlier this year. On on that's on 5G network build out. But effectively, Huawei's outlook is now being clouded, being challenged by two main things. If we look at the、uh, the consumer business, which is its smartphone business essentially,、um, so now it's kind of blocked completely from the U.S. market. But more importantly,、um, they can't use U.S.-made technology, and the main impact of that is they can no longer use Google mobile services, which is YouTube and Gmail and things like that, which kind of Western users take for granted. However, Huawei has been developing its own、um, operating system, which is called Huawei Mobile Services, which is already used within China. But the question remains: going forward,、um, will European consumers want a Huawei handset which doesn't have Google services on it? So that's one of the big question marks for Huawei going forward on the smartphone side. On the 5G side, it's also had to do a similar thing: basically swap in. Um, alternative parts for all of the U.S. components, and this has been a more challenging、um, thing for them to do than on the smartphones, where they've already launched some new models with no U.S.-made parts. In the 5G base stations, that's been a harder undertaking,、um, but it does have its own、uh, chip design unit, High Silicon,、um, and it's been getting supplied by TSMC, the giant Taiwanese foundry. Now, this is where the interesting question comes in: the U.S. Um, could, if it wants,、um, President Trump could put even further pressure on Huawei in the year ahead by basically putting more pressure on TSMC not to supply Huawei. Now it hasn't done this yet, and some people have referred to this as the nuclear option.、Um, but if that happens, that's going to be、um, another heavy challenge for Huawei. I think more broadly,、um, but Huawei so far has managed to weather the storm. I mean, it's just recorded record revenue for 2019. Um, but that is backward-looking. It's not the year ahead. So everybody is going to be looking to the year ahead and how Huawei deals with these challenges. Meanwhile, we also have the coronavirus、um, crisis going on, which is impacting supply chains. But for Huawei, it, it, it is the main threat posed by U.S. action against it.、Um, on the positive side,、um, Huawei is also getting into、um, artificial intelligence. Um, and obviously, 5G rollout in China itself is very aggressive,、um, and Huawei basically views itself as providing the connectivity for the next generation of AI technologies. So the future could be bright.、Um, and if the Germany decision goes its way, then in Europe,、um, you know, that would be a very big、um, tailwind for Huawei in, in Europe,、um, and it will be a very good outcome. But essentially, in a nutshell, that that's the outlook right now. I agree with what will happen in the smartphone、uh, smartphone business. Smartphone business makes up the largest、uh, operation of Huawei. Its、uh, its results in 2019 is double that of the carrier business, where which is where the 5G base stations goes to, and the enterprise business. So it's either Huawei will ramp up efforts in the enterprise business, and Succeed more in the five、uh, G network rollouts to compensate for 
potential losses or potential diminished growth in the smartphones uh, business. But uh, knowing how Huawei's wolf culture uh, would react to such a thing, they still remain optimistic. Their culture is to move forward, not look backward. So we'll also have to closely watch what will happen next during the uh, U.S. presidential elections because a change in government might potentially be favorable also to companies right now who are being subjected to pressure by the Trump administration. Right. Melissa, I have a quick follow-up question for you. Because as you mentioned, Jin is such a key and centric figure for not only the company's operation, but also its culture and value. So I'm wondering, has Ren personally suggested or given any hint um, what the company would look like after his potential retirement? Actually, from what he said, it seems as though he thinks that the company would go on just the way that it is right now. Um, so as I said, like he says that he doesn't really think that even currently like it matters so much whether or not he's in Huawei. Um, one of the things that they've implemented to try to um, make sure that past leadership decisions doesn't um, affect the future direction of the company is that they implemented what he called sunset provisions. And interestingly, he said that these were actually um, inspired by U.S. President Donald Trump, who has a rule that um, if he implements um, one decision, then two have to be repealed from the past. So in Huawei, um, every five years, uh, they retire their corporate files, uh, which means that they don't keep them around. They don't refer to wrench and face decisions from, say, 10 years ago. Um, and in that sense, I think that he's really trying to let go and ensure that the company moves on without him. As he's, around, he's already 75 years old, um, so I don't think he envisions that he will be around to set the direction of the company for that much longer. Right. Thank you guys for coming to the show and sharing your work. Appreciate it. Thank you for having us. Thanks, Yang. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so that's about all the time we have for this episode. I'm your producer, editor, sound designer, Yang Yang. If you have any questions or ideas for future episodes, please feel free to email me at yang.yang at smp.com. And by the way, we also have a Facebook group called Inside China Tech, where we share new ideas and discoveries and interesting articles about China Tech to people who are interested in China Tech. So if that sounds like you, please feel free to send us a request and we will pull you in. And for more awesome stories and insight like this about China Tech, head to smp.com tech. If you enjoy this podcast, do rate us five stars on iTunes. You can also find us on Spotify, Stitcher, Google, or anywhere you listen to your podcasts. Stay safe. See you next time. Bye. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.